Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. The Mt. Gox event in February 2014 was the most pivotal and important events in Bitcoin history because this is when my guest today, Ryan Selkis, a.k.a. the 2-Bit Idiot, released a document showing that Mt. Gox was bankrupt by 750,000 Bitcoin. This was almost a double-digit percentage of the whole supply of Bitcoin at the time. But like everything else in life, good things come from bad ones. And as we know, soon after Mt. Gox collapsed, and we thought this was the end of Bitcoin. I mean, like, I, I thought this was over. I was ready to move on. I, I was under house arrest and I said to myself, okay, like, I'm just going to go to jail now and then I'll do something else when I get out. Bitcoin's over. That's how big of a deal this was. But until this episode, Ryan had never shared the full story. This is the first time he did. And I'm so honored that he chose untold stories to talk about what exactly went down on that fateful night. Crazy, crazy stuff. We talked about how the one of the projects that I founded, the Bitcoin Foundation in 2012, ended up becoming Coin Center. Well, out of the ashes of the Bitcoin Foundation, Coin Center was created. And there were so many other good things and good stories. Ryan is the co-founder and CEO of Misari, huge company in the space, providing constant data and pushing for disclosure and transparency. He was also one of the founders of the digital currency group that invests in hundreds of Bitcoin and crypto companies founded with Ryan by Barry Silbert going back like seven, eight years ago. And he was the managing director at Coindesk. So there was like an, one of the founders of, of the Consensus Conference that everyone goes to once a year in New York. I think it's like the springtime or whatever. So you can imagine that this episode was chock full of historical tidbits that you guys are going to love. So as I always say, give some love to the sponsors. We got Ryan Selkis on the show. Super amazing, brilliant, brilliant gentleman. And I'll talk to you guys right after the ads. If you're buying, selling, or holding crypto, you are a low-hanging fruit for the IRS. And for many years, I've been waiting for a good solution where I can be proactive in my taxes, but more importantly, to sleep at night. Before the IRS picks you for an examination, subscribe to our newest sponsor, Crypto Tax Audit. Crypto Tax Audit is an audit protection service designed for the needs of the crypto trader. That's you, me, and really everyone else. It acts like an insurance policy. Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself, including preparing the required anti-money laundering forms. If the IRS examines your crypto reporting on your tax return, the experts at Crypto Tax Audit will provide all the IRS representation and tax law research at no charge. The statute of limitations on a crypto tax return is six years. Crypto Tax Audit covers you regardless of what year the IRS examines, all for a low price of $97. Best of all, you can sleep well knowing that the best crypto tax gurus are ready to defend you. Crypto Tax Audit is a service of the Donnelly Tax Law. All new subscribers of Crypto Tax Audit will get a copy of the latest ebook, Does My Crypto Tax Returns Need Surgery? It's a phenomenal book. You get it as soon as you sign up. It's a short but super, super powerful book. While other services are reactive, Crypto Tax Audit are proactive and give you the tools like their Crypto Tax Health Check so you can reduce your chances of getting an IRS letter in the first place. No one likes that certified letter from the IRS. 
Donnelly Tax Law specializes in complex crypto tax return preparation. No situation is too complex for them. So check them out at CryptoTaxAudit.com. And listen, guys, start defending yourself today. You're a super loyal podcast listener, and you've been listening to my show for a while. So you know that Bitpanda, which is a company based out of Austria, has been working with me for a few months now. And I'm a huge fan of Vienna, and I'm a huge fan of Bitpanda. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. Their core product is an easy-to-use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker. They have over a million users, so you know they really care about their customers. What's amazing about Bitpanda is really how easy it is to set up an account and get going. They recently launched their own educational platform, and this is super cool, so check it out. Take a listen for a second, where you can learn all about Bitcoin and more. It's free regularly updated and you can earn five euro for free when you complete the quiz so make sure you check it out bitpanda.com they are a big sponsor of ours and please give them some love because they love me untold stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company blockworks group a few months ago i approached blockworks group and i said hey guys i want to do a show untold stories can we make it happen And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them, and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the BlockWorks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at BlockWorksGroup.io. That's BlockWorksGroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been too long. Good it's, to hear from you, man. It's been it's been very long. And I was just, you know, when I when I get prepared for the show, I, I kind of go back and say to myself, like, do I know this person before? Do I do I not? And if I know the person, I go back and I like try to figure out when was the first time I communicated with that person? When did how did we even meet? And I don't know how we met. All I see is that I started following you. Um Around the time that I, you know, I was spending a lot of time and I was on house arrest, actually. And I started following you in 2014. Um, and you even let me do a guest post. So thank you for that. Um, and it was really cool to see. I was reading a lot of your early, early um, newsletters. And and I don't know if you do this, but I kind of implore like some of your diehard fans to go back and see your progression. It's It's really cool. And the stuff that you write about is like almost like content for the show. So now I can like go back and see what was going on every day during 2014, 2015, 2016, because you were putting out um, just, you know, uh, these newsletters. And but that wasn't your first foray into the crypto space, into the Bitcoin space. Well, really, the word like crypto didn't really exist back then. How did you Mm -hmm. first? I know it's a terrible. I hate this question, by the way, and I never I never really like to ask it. But what? Um, what was your first foray into the, into our, you know, fledgling Bitcoin space at the time? And then we can, I I definitely want to get into some of the more later on, but like, when did you first hear about it get into it? Well, it's an important question for this episode in particular, if we're going to talk about Mt. Cox, (laughs) because, because the obvious question is how the fuck did you break this story half a world away when you didn't really know anyone you were just getting started and, um, and these you know, these documents just kind of fell into my lap as a, a solo artist, not really representing any larger media brand or, or, or editorial desk. Um, 
So I first heard of Bitcoin in mid-2011. I'm not technical, so I wrote it off pretty instantly, but but it was part of a, a macro trade that I was making to short the dollar, buy gold, and ignore Bitcoin, which was basically the only way that you could possibly fail in trading the, the S&P's downgrade to the U.S. debt. Um, I went over three, but I had the right thesis, um, which is what helped me keep track of Bitcoin through 2013. And at the time, I was winding down a startup of mine and kind of in between, I had a 10-month period where I was in between whether I'd go to business school or do something else and um, shut my startup down Halloween weekend of, of 2013. I bought a little Bitcoin late summer, early fall uh, and kind of doubled down and, and started taking it seriously once the Fed shut down Silk Road. And it was obvious that this you know, wasn't just going to be for child pornographers and terrorists. And, and, and actually, there was some legitimacy and you could actually catch people that were doing, you know, Ill, conducting illicit activity. Um, and uh, I just started writing uh, on a daily basis because I didn't really see many good synopses uh, for investors. You know, Coindesk was really, really early. They launched in April of that year. But the primary source of information at the time was our Bitcoin and Coindesk. But were and, people like investing in Bitcoin? Like, I don't even, I guess until I started reading your, your papers, I didn't think people actually were like buying Bitcoin as an investment almost. Like, well, this was, this, this was the fall of 2013, which was like the first really mainstream mega rally to, to a thousand, right? And that's when, you know, Coinbase had raised money earlier in the year from Fred Wilson. And then they ended up doing a follow on series B with Andreessen for, you know, 25 million when the price just jackknifed up to a thousand and then back down, you know, rather quickly. Um, so this was like the November, December timeframe. And actually my first post ever, not including friends that I was just emailing and, and had an ongoing thread with in, in early November, um, was November 19th. That's when I set up the Tumblr and the pseudonym and, um, and the two bit idiot was born on Twitter and, 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 our Bitcoin and <laughs> and other environments. A lot, a lot um, of the guests that we have on the show will tell me that the best, the best time to get into into Bitcoin into crypto is during a bear market. And you literally started at the, like like that day may have been that top of that rally. Like I remember December twenty thirteen, November. It was my birthday. It was Christmas time. That was the top. Remember, I, I bought a little bit earlier that fall. So for me, being in between. Uh, startup and business school, I went down the rabbit hole just for practical reasons. Should I buy more of this? Should I sell what I just earned 6X in a matter of weeks? Um, or should I just hold and kind of ride this thing out? So, you know, I, I ended up just doing this for self-preservation and for, for speculative reasons um, because I, I made you know, a decent amount of money in a very short amount of time. Uh, and I didn't know whether to just cash in that lottery ticket or keep going. And as many people will tell you, the the if they get sucked into the rabbit hole, they don't really come out. <laughs> and, and that was you know certainly the camp that I fell into, which is why I started writing about it. So there's there's a, a delta between you know I didn't get in at the top from an as an as from an investment standpoint, but I did start writing about it about the week before things really started to go crazy. I mean, I started writing about it when it was in the 200s and it went all the way up to, you know, 1,000, 1,100 before settling back down into the 800s range for the, the end of the year that year. I spent a lot of time, you know, reading your writings the past week and a lot of the general themes, you you, you stay very consistent. Um, what, what it's, what's cool to see is how you evolve. Um, 
one of the things that you talked about very early, like like when I, I mean like 20, 2013, you would tweet about and, and write about um, your holdings, Bitcoin, Ethereum. You, I remember when the Mt. Gox thing happened, and we'll get into that later, but you even said, I'm selling all my Bitcoin right now uh, because you, you couldn't morally hold on to something that you, you know, this was, you're a good investor and you felt that this was, and we all did actually, the Mt. Gox situation was an, was an existential threat to, to Bitcoin. But um, going back to the other point I was trying to make, that general theme of disclosure you've you've constantly kept um and it's been a constant but without using the word disclosure and ryan i'm i'm starting to see this word being thrown around constantly and i feel like it's going to be one of the words of 2020 um and it's going to apply a lot to all all companies individuals in our space and it's going to be disclosure and how many times do i see you tweeting to various um, token holder, ICO, CEOs or companies or whatever saying, why don't you disclose? You need better disclosure. Any information of data that you don't have, how can someone blame you for having not all the right information about something when they're not disclosing all that information? Do you think that this will become a general theme in 2020? And is that something that we need you know, for, for a positive industry? I don't think many people in the industry argue against transparency and disclosure. The question is, how do you organize this information and how do you create some type of teeth around compliance for disclosures? You know, it's easy to disclose things when it's marketing language, when things are going well and there's nothing but sunshine and rainbows to report. Yeah. <laughs> it, it becomes a whole lot more difficult to do in any you know, systematic way. Uh, it becomes much more difficult to do when you don't know where this information should even live, because there is nothing like an Edgar database. There is nothing like um, generally accepted accounting principles or the concept of of audits. If people are starting to talk about these things, I think most major players know that it, that it's important, but it's a matter of how this is executed and, and what the form factor is that people can actually digest this information. Because the problem in crypto is not information access, it's synthesized and clean data and information uh, and, and standardized information. I think that's where we've tried to spend our time and energy as a company, and that manifests itself through our, our products. Um, now, you know, having said that, uh, disclosures is just one element of what we're doing at Masari. I think in order to have a, a healthy information market and reliable education tools and compliance tools, for the next, you know, or first billion users of crypto, you need that type of standardization and someone needs to lay that foundation and do that grunt work. But um, it's not for lack of inherent uh, transparency on the part of most of these projects or, or exchanges. Uh, I think it's more structural than that. And, and that's why we spent time and energy, you know, going down this rabbit hole. What's, what I think will happen is um, companies like yours and others will start to require to certain types of disclosures and certain types of transparency, like holdings and things like that, um, f you know, for, for various projects, companies, et cetera. And if they don't meet the standards, then they won't be able to participate in whether it's conferences or being listed in certain databases online, Missar included. Um, and I think that'll, that this is a market created um, solution. I mean, that's what kind of, I hope to see happen and what we've, what we've been seeing happen over, over time. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and we've said from day one that a lot of the information we're collecting should be free and open. We're just the initial maintainers of that system and, and the ones that are aiming to set some of these standards. 
I, I'll tell you right now, it's certainly not the path to a, a billion dollar company. Um, so from just a, a fiduciary standpoint, th- this is a, a means to an end for us. But we think in general, some of the information that we have access to that we're trying to make more widely known and discoverable is not something that you build a, a, a business moat around or that is necessarily that insightful. It's uh, having clean data on which to build tools and, and services that will help people make sense um, of, of the information that becomes very valuable. And that work too. Yeah, of course. Products uh, and services that work. Well, we laugh about it now, but I mean, let's go back two years ago when we had shit that didn't work. Um, that whole bull market that you're talking about, 2013, even Coinbase went down. Um, Coinbase went down the second bull market. Uh, Coinbase still went down the other day. Like, I mean, we still have products and services that don't that don't fully work. But but let's use my terrible transition and segue and talk about the ultimate product and service that didn't actually work. And you know what I'm talking about. So to to preface this for everyone who's listening, at the time, we're talking about the earliest, you know, one of the first bull markets that we had in our in, in our industry. The price was going to $1200 and Mount Gox had an insane market share. What was the market share of Mount Gox at the time in in that year, 2013? 2013, it got up to 80% of trading volume. 80% trading volume. And we would almost like joke as friends, like uh, people and I, friends of mine, we would talk and we would say amongst ourselves, like, you know, if Mount Gox disappeared, if Mark did an exit scam, Bitcoin would be over. Um, And so as... I think I think because people knew that this was so important and Mt. Gox was so important to our industry, it was like the pillar of our industry, that as withdrawal problems were going on and people weren't, get, weren't, get, weren't getting their Bitcoin, weren't getting their money, because of all this was happening, we dug in, myself included. Um, look at all the people on Twitter today that we're talking about. We dug in and we actually, you, you, I remember when you first came out, a lot of people like, were like hounding you like negatively. Like if I were you, I would have cried. It was crazy. But what you did was such an important service. I want to let you tell the story. Can you start from the beginning? Well, it depends on where your definition of the beginning is. <laughs> um, so, so uh, you know, like I said, I, I started writing full time in, in November of that year. And just to set the stage, Mount Gox, to your point, had already become a bit of a joke. They had had mismanagement issues in the past. They'd had crashes and and security breaches in the past. Um, and it, you know, it wasn't until 2013 that, that late 2013 in particular, that some of these issues really started to become obvious. Uh, they had issues with FinCEN, uh, and dollar deposits in, uh, in middle of the year, they had a suit and countersuit with coin lab, one of the major U S based companies, which, you know, Mark Carpella still do, still, aren't still they? do, I, I believe. Yeah. And, and Mark Carpella. What does coin lab even do? What does Peter Vestness do or did? No one even knows. Well, I, I don't really think the company ever took off. It was, it was ostensibly going to be an incubator of sorts. And, and one of the deals that they allegedly had, I guess, with Mt. Gox was to create a Western alternative to Mt. Gox, leveraging some of their tech and systems. Um, but, yeah, but it was such a, it's like a dumb JV because I was involved in like that because at the time, BitInstant was the largest uh, wirer. Is that even a word? Wirer? You know, wirer from the US know. to Mount Gox. We were. Mm-hmm. we So so one of the, the, like the reason that that was all going down was so I would start wiring money to CoinLab 
as opposed to Mt. Gox directly. And I don't know what was going through Mark's head at the time. Maybe he was trying to use it to to offshoot some of the liability or whatever, because he you know he knew that a lot of Bitcoin was missing. But you know, it what had happened was like when they and I know we're digressing, but when they had forged that relationship, the Coin Lab and Mt. Gox thing. I remember getting an, getting an email from from Mark saying, "All right, now you're going to wire money," and we were wiring like 600k a week type of thing um, to buy Bitcoin for on behalf of our customers. I remember um, Mark saying, "All right, you're going to be wiring money to CoinLab now." And so the next day, I wired money to CoinLab, thinking that it would be, you know, this is awesome. I wire money in and out of San Francisco. The money gets credited to BitInstance Mount Gox account. Wonderful. Never happened. Never happened. Um, they were fighting from day one. So Mark wasn't approving the, you know, and so BitInstant started going through this crazy liquidity crunch, which ended up leading in, leading into BitInstant's demise because we couldn't service our customers. We had a lot of complaints. We had a, a, a two customers tried to sue me. I ended up paying them out of my own pocket. It was just a clusterfuck. But mm-hmm. I mean, but these were the deals that were going on in those years. And I like talking about them because we have to learn to make sure that we have to be adults for the future. But let me, I took it away from you. Let me go back. Uh, you go back to, to where you were at with CoinLab. Well, uh, you know, I've, first of all, I think that's right. Second of all, I think it's to be expected, right? You know, remember Mal, Mal Gox started as Magic the Gathering Online Exchange. And when it first started trading Bitcoin in 2010, you know, the, the Bitcoin... Uh, economy hit a, a million dollar market cap, right? Um, and, and this is late 2010. So we, this this was a novelty item. Uh, it wasn't structured to be a financial services enterprise and and you know multinational conglomerate uh, as something akin to like a, a J.P. Morgan for crypto. It was, it was naturally going to be the tinkerers and and you know misfits that were building some of the early applications. Some like Coinbase ultimately ended up making it through because they had a very professional founding team and, and they were savvy about the people they hired. Others have fallen by the wayside. I, I, I think that's probably repeatable in, Part in of pretty, much, yeah, pr- pretty much any emerging industry. But um, what, what the reason I brought up CoinLab is just kind of one puzzle piece of many in 2013 where, where things, Malcox started to show signs of weakness. And, you know, if you remember late that year, the, the price volatility on Mt. Gox was, you know, 50% higher than it was on, on some of the other. Yeah, there was a crazy premium. Um, and, you know, BTC China had, I think, reported volumes, at least, that were, that started to rival Mt. Gox. And, and, of course, we know what's going on with, with, even to this day, inflated volumes coming out of Chinese exchanges and some of the Korean exchanges. But still, you know, between uh, BTC China, Bitstamp, um, and in a couple of others, Mt. Gox market share started to decline from 80% and, and kind of steadily ticked down. Um, so this, this kind of coincides with my entry to the industry. So when, when I first started writing and, and thinking about services in, in the industry, I, I kind of laughed at and learned to laugh at Mt. Gox along with every, everybody else. Like, uh, clearly this is a company that's on its way out and, and on its way under because now the, the big boys are here. Um, and and like the professionals will will kind of take things from here. That that was kind of always in the back of my mind as as one of my starting assumptions. And it was pretty easy to track at that time because it's only you know you could have fit the fifty or so venture backed entrepreneurs in, in the same room back then. Um, was there that many fifty? G- being generous, mm. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's pro- probably closer to twenty. You know, I 
I remember going out to SF and and uh, visiting Coinbase when they were you know five, and it just hired Adam White as, as number six. Um, and I joke with Adam that he took my job because <laughs> I'm oh, not technical. Yeah. He was I like remember Adam. He was yeah. a he, he yeah he helped me out a lot too. Nice guy. Uh, yeah, and, I mean he's still around. He's he's the COO at Back now, so so he hasn't gone anywhere. But um, just to give people a sense of kind of perspective and scale. Um, but, you know, I, I got to know people pretty quickly, A, because it was small and I went to some of the major conferences in Vegas and Miami around that time. And, um, and B, because I had this newsletter and there was kind of a, a dearth of, of quality curation and information at the time. Um, so, you know, I ended up getting connected with a group um, that was operating a listserv called XGBTC, which is more or less a, a Silicon Valley insiders list. Um, email listserv that that had kind of the who's who. Uh, it's still kicking. Up. Yeah, I, I haven't I, seen an email in a while, though. Yeah, I, I know the group's still alive. I, I haven't seen much in a while. Um, but I mean, it, it, when I say it was the who's who, I mean it's 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 pretty much all the folks that you would think of, you know, as as kind of early pioneers in the industry. I mean, you and I were on it. Um, Barry and and Bobby Cho from DCG, then Second Market, were on it. Um, you had, you know, Wences, you had the, the Eric was guys, on it, Eric Voorhees, the Coinbase guys. Um, it was started by Ben Davenport, I believe, uh, maybe with one or two other folks, um, who was the former CTO at BitGo. Um, so, so this, there was a lot of firepower on this list, a bunch of the early, you know, Silicon Valley based, uh, investors and VCs as well. Um, and, uh, through those relationships and through, you know, some of my writing, um, I ended up getting connected with Coindesk, uh, began working as an op-ed contributor for them. No strings attached, just a contractor. But uh, enough people were starting to read and, and rely on my daily note and, and engage with me on an ongoing basis that um, I started asking you know, some questions about you know, Mal Cox in, in February. By the way, along with Coindesk, who, who in early February of 2014 commissioned a survey to get a temperature check of Mt. Cox customers and actually found something like 70% of customers were, were experiencing multi-month withdrawal delays. Hey, Ryan, um, mm-hmm. why did you write with a pseudonym back then? And when did that change? Um, I, I started writing with a pseudonym basically from day one because I had been warned by you know friends and <laughs> some of the non-crypto uh, folks uh, that I was writing for initially, being you know, some of my investor friends from, from my first couple of jobs, um, I said, just in case this thing ends up getting blacklisted or, or banned by the U.S. government, or you know, you, you end up getting caught up with the wrong people, you, you might want to not write under your real name or create some pseudonym. And um, I just you know kind of spitballed and, and came up. Pretty with good that. advice, actually. It was, yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, you know, I didn't. It didn't last, right? Uh, mostly because people were meeting me in person, um, and the, the 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 list grew up. And then once you know the the Malcox story broke, you know, all hell broke loose, and, and people knew exactly who I was. Um, but uh, it was it was kind of good for early access and and early unfiltered opinionated writing, even though I didn't really know what I was talking about the, at the time. Um, and, and, you know, enough people liked it that they wanted to figure out who I was in person. You know, I'd, I'd written one piece on Coinbase and Brian Armstrong had DM me on, on Reddit and said, hey, you seem to know a lot. Like, we had the meetup the other night or who are you? 
Um, and, you know, kind of similar conversations like that happened um, throughout the course of those first couple months. Um, and, and actually, you know, as, as a result of that, in late February, when on the XGBTC list, uh, rumors were circulating about what the hell's going on with Mal Cox, um, came to learn that a few different parties were being approached for essentially a bailout. Um, and this this was ultimately how the quote unquote crisis strategy draft uh, document uh, ultimately was surfaced. And, and this was a private- Remind us. So when these companies were being approached by a bailout, what was the- um... What was the narrative that was being ta- that was being said about Mt. Gox? Whether it was people speculating or coming from like you know uh, an inside source or whatever before the document was released, what was like the worst case scenario that we would think is actually wrong with Mt. Gox? Before this, I, I think people believe that it was mismanagement, and they might they might be having you know they might have been hacked or they might have had some um, issue that was holding them up. It, it could have been regulatory driven. From someone like FinCEN, uh, it could have been a yeah. minor hack from like the Hot Wallet, something like that. But no but one. Everyone had... felt that Mountain Gox was on shaky ground, and so you know, having the Silicon Valley types or the real VCs, someone to really run it the right way, that was a great idea. To be honest, still is. Well, it's too late now. Yeah, um, I, I think it was more dire than that, right? This was not a case where Mark and his team had reached out to Silicon Valley investors and said, hey, it's time to professionalize this business. Um, and what this crisis strategy document had laid out, which is you know, commissioned by a, a consulting firm that I think you know, Mark and, and his, uh, his team had engaged to help them figure out this mess, um, it, um, it, it, it reads like a, a pretty panicky document. Uh, and and it, it kind of lays it out in black and white terms for the folks that they circulated it to. Um, Malcox customers have been affected by major withdrawal issues that have compounded. Um, our you know, workarounds have not been effective. At this point, we're 750,000 Bitcoin short. The cold storage is wiped out. And they say, and I quote, at the risk of appearing hyperbolic, this could be the end of Bitcoin, at least for most of the public. Um, the likely consequences of something like this would be much larger than localized financial damage. And we think the benefits of keeping Malcox stable and running outweigh the risks. This is I mean, these were dire Malcox. words. Yeah. And this is what they're presenting to investors, right? So they went to the insiders and they said, that, you know, look, we fucked up, but really it's not about us. We know that we're going to have to change the management team. We know that we're going to have to change and swap out a lot of our infrastructure. Um, but you know, you're 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 talking about a bailout of Bitcoin now, not necessarily Malcox. And what they were essentially proposing was was that Malcox go fractional if they had a capital infusion, and then work to make it back. Um, how exactly was unclear, but but this wouldn't you know this ultimately was exactly what Bitfinex did years later um, when they offered you know investors access and and, and direct investment in. In Bitfinex, in order to keep it afloat um, and bail in based on uh, a hack that they'd experienced in mid 2015, so th- this is essentially what Mt. Cox was going to follow as a playbook as well. I'm trying to f- see what how many Bitcoin were in circulation back then. Um, I think it was around like 10 or 11 million, and so mm-hmm. you have um, almost like 10 percent of the whole supply here in Mt. Cox. Like not that high, maybe like six or seven, but still like an yeah. insane an insane number. Um, 
how did you how did you you know get this document and then and then what were the first receptions how did you just take us in your mind like i almost i almost want i want to feel like i was in your shoes and take 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 me back to like an hour before the document you got this document and tell me like your thought process before what were you doing what happened when you got it your first reactions who did you talk to did you did you talk to anyone i mean this was like Almost, I mean, this will go down and I, it's a stupid analogy, but this will go down as like, almost like, you know, on the levels of Snowden. I mean, even things like, uh, like Nixon type things like this is, this was no joke. So walk us through like those, those moments, what were you feeling? I I think that's a little hyperbolic. (laughs) (laughs) I get excited Um, on this show. Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it was the equivalent of that, but for, you know, small fish in a small pond, I guess at, at the time, obviously. For now happened, though. It, yeah. If it happened now, it would be you know much, much, uh, much, much bigger. Um, so, you know, uh, I've basically spent six years uh, keeping that source a, a secret, but he finally gave me permission to, to kind of tell the full story, which is why I came on the podcast. Um, so I get a call. This is probably mid afternoon in February, I'm living in Boston at the time. I get a, uh, an email or a text. I, I can't remember which, um, from Ben Davenport, who was the BitGo CTO. And at the time he wasn't yet at BitGo. He was, um, he was still, I think, winding down from Facebook. He'd sold a company to Facebook and, um, and was the ex GBTC founder. So he was very in the weeds as an investor, angel investor in, in the Silicon Valley Bitcoin scene. But, um, and he said, Hey, you have a minute, you know, kind of have to talk and I think you might be interested in this. There's, there's maybe a big story here. Um, and I was out walking my dog, uh, and got on the phone with him and he said, I don't really know how to say this, but, uh, Mt. Gox is short about 750,000 bitcoins, which at the time was about half a billion dollars, just a shade oh my God. half a billion dollars. And, you know, my first reaction was, well, they're incompetent, but they're not that fucking incompetent. Like, how how can you be so sure? And he said, "Well, the, you know, uh, there's this document, you know, circulating around. I'll send it to you. Keep my name out of this, um, but you know, it, it's not just us that have gotten it. I'm sure you'll be able to authenticate this pretty quickly because, um, you know, they're looking for a bailout essentially. Um, so you can imagine the who's who that was getting this. Um, you know, I'd, I'd reached out to a few folks." Um, that kind of gave me non-answer answers that were good enough. Um, and, uh, and, and I ended up realizing as I went through this document that Mal Cox was planning an announcement for the next morning, which really wasn't the next morning. It was like six hours in local time terms. Um, so I had about an hour to make a decision as to whether to publish this document as is or kind of sit on it until I could verify it, at which time you know, Mal Cox would have proactively gone dark and said, hey, we're suspending trading for a couple of weeks. Um, for X, Y, Z reasons until we figure out this transaction malleability issue. Well, um, what you did was you, 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 you allowed the community to take back that narrative. And that's what was so important what you did, because if you didn't do that, we could talk about what would have happened, you know, where would we be now? But if you had not done that and Mt. Gox was allowed with their PR company and their lawyers to put out their own statement and continue controlling, who knows if more money would have been lost? Who knows if things would have worked out the way they did now? I mean, um, with civil forfeit, with uh, civil rehabilitation or whatever, who knows if that would have happened? So you you gave that narrative back. I mean, and and you almost could say 
and I would go out on a limb and say this, and someone can argue with me, I don't care. By that time, Mt. Gox was a utility. It was a public utility for Bitcoin. And so it's almost like you were doing that service, not for like a, for us as a, as a, you know, like you weren't like whistleblowing or whatever, a private company. Um, it's as if you came out and you, you found that, um, you know, you fit, you have, you had evidence that uh, a major institution or a major public utility or something that we rely on, um, as humans was bankrupt or whatever. That's how I look at this. I mean, I don't think it's too far from the market. You know, there's, you kind of mentioned, um, you know, I, I sold my Bitcoin on, on Coinbase. Um, and, and partly it was the thesis has changed. Um, but there was another pretty meaningful part here, which was I knew that I was going to be in the thick of things for the next, you know, 48, 72 hours. Um, and I didn't want to be like day trading information uh, because I, I felt like even though this was an unregulated asset, if, if I was trading this, um, then I could go to jail. <laughs> I didn't know exactly how I didn't have legal counsel. Like I said, you know, I was writing this from my kitchen table um, at you know midnight and, and one o'clock and three o'clock in the morning um, for, you know, a couple, you know, two, three back to back nights. So uh, I basically made the decision. I'm just going to sell out and then I can always repurchase if I need to. But um for right now, I'm, I'm going to sit on the sidelines for a while. It ended up being a good price to sell at too, though. Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, uh, it ended up bouncing back rather quickly and it, it actually got, uh, it rallied for the few months after the initial uh, expose. Of the course, longer term. Up, well, it ended up declining again, but it, you know, we can, we can argue you know, when, whether you should ever try to time the market. But it was less about the, the trade and more about just having one element of my bandwidth back. So I don't have to worry about my personal coffers or, or, you know, averaging in or, or trying to be simultaneously a, uh, a quasi journalist and a trader, uh, at once. I'm sure it could have been profitable, but like I said, uh, I was in legal, uh, gray area, but, but the general ethics of it were, were kind of a, a no brainer figured if I was going to have any long-term future in the industry, being the guy that broke the story and then was insider trading, it was not a good way to start. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, it was, it was, it was wild to see everybody come out of the woodwork and, and immediately start working to confirm this. Um, and obviously, you know, you were one of the folks that I spoke with that first night. Um, and oh, I remember your, that. Yes, we yeah. spoke. So, so to, so to answer, well, not, not only did we spoke, but you were on, I think IRC chat with Mark basically saying like, what the fuck, man, is this legit? And, and he was I have to find those chats. Yeah. I remember. Yeah, I think he, he even admitted that it was real. Yeah, he did. I was, I mean, I was on, I was on the phone with you, but you, yeah. you were giving me a play by play cause he wouldn't speak to me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, could you believe and, that I was like, I can't believe that it, like Mark did just ignore people all those times and then would just easily get on an IRC with me. I could tell you crazy stories about that, but anyways, continue. Sorry. Well, it, it's, it's probably cause you guys had a pretty close business relationship. I don't know what the personal relationship was, but, um, but it, there was it, it seemed like, it seemed like there was you know, a few people that he could actually talk to, uh, at the time. But, you know, at the point that this broke, there wasn't really hiding anything like the, the document was out there. It was going to get authenticated one way or the other, um, because it was true and they knew that they were going to be shutting down operations for at least a couple of weeks. Anyway, um, they, they didn't come out with a statement, um, for a while, but they did delete all of their tweets um, and you know uh, a couple of other things that kind of raised red flags. Um, 
across the industry where people said something's not right here. Uh, and, and, you know, more or less when they deleted their tweets, people knew that they were covering their ass for some legal reason um, beyond just, hey, we're, we've got a technical issue. That's, that's you know, that camp, they went back and deleted all the tweets and everything. But now do you... Now you see what what I meant earlier was that controlling that narrative, and that's why it was so important to to have done that. Are you worried about that dreadful certified letter from the IRS? Are you worried about the IRS auditing your crypto returns? Then you need Crypto Tax Audit. They provide IRS audit defense designed for the crypto owner. Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself including preparing the required anti-laundering forms. Subscribe today at CryptoTaxAudit.com for $97. That's CryptoTaxAudit.com. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them, and we have been for a few months now. They love me, and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically, what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. Going back to that tweet in 2014. Um, so just to read your tweet, you wrote, I hope this isn't true. But I received a report allegedly from Mt. Gox. Uh, they had lost 750,000 Bitcoin. A journalist wouldn't have written, I hope this isn't true, um, because it would show bias. Did you like write those words carefully? Did you consider yourself a journalist back then? Uh, no. I mean, I wrote them carefully, but you know, the, the accident of history in creating this tubid idiot pseudonym is... I was able to write a little bit more authentically and, and without the same rules and constructs of, you know, someone that goes through journalism school, like a pushy envelope a little bit. Um, and, uh, and, and ultimately just use discretion on, on when to be opinionated and when to report just the facts and, um, and when to enter splice fact and commentary. Uh, and it turns out people thought that was, you know, generally thought that was pretty valuable. Um, I think that's still true today. I mean, if you think about some of the, top media outlets, just generally speaking, you know, people want to hear from Joe Rogan. Like they don't, they don't want to hear from CNN anymore. Um, you know, in, in sports, um, who's the fullback uh, for, uh, I'm blanking on his name, but the, the, the guy from Fox who's, who's buddies with all of the players, he gets the inside. Oh screen. yes, yes, yes. I know you're talking you know, about a Jay Glazer. Yeah. Um, yes. So, so I think um, there's some real value in that in the look, 
I'm not going to let you blow smoke up my ass. But at the same time, if it's not important, I'm not going to scoop you. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to write a fucking tell all, right? I'm not going to be that douchebag in 10 years that says, you know, here's what I heard at like this particular event and blah, 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 and, and kind of digs up dirt on everybody. Um, you know, if I ever write a book, it'll be, you know, it'll be funny. It'll be honest, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to sandbag people and, and um, be one of those guys. So I, I think that's more or less shown through in, in most of the decisions I've made, you know, writing day to day is, um, you know, do no harm to the individuals, unless it's some, some instance of like outright fraud or, or potential fraud, um, which I have no problem with. Right. So uh, I, I think that has been, will continue to be, you know, an important personal uh, mantra for me when I, when I think about writing and analyzing the industry, but it, it also doesn't come with the same shackles or quite frankly, conflicts of interest that traditional journalism comes with. Right. Well, so let's so let's talk about that. So so in February 2014, you know, this all came out at this point. Now it's its own animal. It's its own beast. You you're you know, it's moved on. It's moved on from from you breaking the story. The way I, what I see was that at that point was the birth of Ryan Selkis. And it was almost like taking two bit idiot as your, um, you know, like what you would your your moniker or whatever pseudonym kind of putting that on the back burner. And what I mean by that is if you're, if your story had ended there, like if you're, if you're out there doing something else and whatever, I would still have you on the show because that was so important, but you, the Ryan Selkis life would be an, like a, another great episode that we're, where we wouldn't even have to talk about the Mount Gox, you know, saga. Um, so that was like the birth of, of Ryan Selkis, you know, as a, as a crypto entrepreneur, as a Bitcoin entrepreneur, you ended up uh, as your third company. You ended up becoming the managing director at CoinDesk, and you were the one of the founders of the Digital Currency Group, which is the biggest VC fund, like the the most one of the most important companies are in our industry um, today. And then you ended up founding Masari. So how did you how did you like segue from away from like two bit idiot into Hey, I'm Ryan Selkis. You're meeting Barry, who's also a very brilliant person founding DCGO, like how did that all kind of come about? Because it's kind of like, it's like almost like two different people. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? It's like one is one story with one, one name. And then now you, you were born again in that, in that way. Well, I, I think this is where the split between public and, and private perception is on this particular issue. I, I had gotten to know most of these entrepreneurs and gotten them to feel like they knew me. Um, maybe even more than I knew them because they were reading on a daily basis. You know, like Barry was a power reader. Um, I remember after I started at DCG, I, you know, when we were cleaning out one of the offices, I saw, you know, a dozen or so of my printed out uh, blogs that, you know, you'd, you'd oh, go wow. and as assistant, you know, uh, print out from like you know, months prior, depending on what the subject was. Um, and, and I think that was true for you know a number of, of entrepreneurs investors uh in in the early ecosystem and my early subscriber base especially um not because i was you know world-class analyst or anything like that but but there was there was very few people that were just doing what i was doing and curating the day-to-day -day noise that was coming from the industry so that's more or less you know stayed consistent um but you know for for that interim period between you know breaking the mount gox story and then um joining DCG, it was about, you know, eight and a half months. And remember, it was 
more or less a slow and steady decline down from the highs of, of 1,000 in, in late 2013 um, through the end of 2014, right? So there was the Malcox issue. Uh, the, the price rebounded for a few months and then started tanking again over the summer. Um, and by the time early 2015 rolled around, it, it breached, you know, $200 again. So there were like, no one was fucking hiring at that point. It didn't matter if people liked me or, or didn't like me. The companies that were hiring didn't have a whole lot of money, number one. Number two, when they were hiring, they were hiring engineers or they were hiring specialists with bona fides that I, I'd never be able to compete with, right? So you're looking for mm. a general counsel or you're looking for head of compliance or you're looking for you know, an enterprise salesperson, things like that. Um, so when I first met Barry, uh, he and I had spoken on the phone a couple of times, but when, when he and I first actually met in person, um, I believe he, I don't believe we met prior to this, but we'd, we'd met over the summer and, and within the first 10 minutes or so of the conversation, he said, you know, I want to hire you. Here's what I'm thinking about building, blah, blah, blah. So, um, so it's pretty clear that, that because the industry was so small, that DCG was this, you know, unique multi-product investment firm, um, that, that it would be a pretty good fit based on my background and some of the research that I was already doing. Um, but I'd say, you know, in terms of the transition from like, you know, TBI to, to Ryan Selkis, uh, even to this day, it's probably still a 50-50 split, right? People, uh, people, I'll meet people in person and they'll say, wait, you're too bit idiot or, oh, I never realized that, you know, you know, you were this person. I always kind of disassociated the two. So, so I, I don't think that's really changed pre and post Mount Cox. And, and even to this day, people that don't know the history, I, I think, you know, still, find that a little bit jarring or, or, or surprising um, when they see me online versus, you know, uh, see me affiliated with Masari versus see me in person. Um, yeah. Fine. You know, uh, it's, I'm, I'm hiding in plain sight, I suppose. Yeah. So you've, you developed a lot of different theories and thesis theses, and you've developed um, a lot of really good and in, in newer writings. And, and now um, what I really like is you start to, you know, call out, uh, different projects on on whether it's like transparency or things like that, and so that's gotten really really good, especially under under Missouri. Um, how did you end up getting into CoinDesk? I mean, like CoinDesk CoinDesk has a very very special place in the hearts of a lot of people who are involved very early on. You, you know, you and you and myself included, um, because CoinDesk was, I guess, the first real reporting medium, you know, and, and I've covered CoinDesk on this show a few times from, from a lot of different people and, and, and everyone has a lot of really good things to say about it. Um, and now CoinDesk is going through another like wave of moving into the DCGO offices. And there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, Pete, Pete left and, um, what, what did CoinDesk look like when you, when you joined and, and why did you, you know, want to become a managing director there? Did you, did you want to, did you, kind of feel like, what do I know about media? Uh, well, DCG was a small investor in Coindesk. And I had, under the DCG umbrella, from day one said to Barry, you know, even dating back to that conversation I mentioned in, in August where we talked about working together, um, I said, you know, my background is in investing, so I can immediately be helpful as you think about additional seed investments. You have to raise money. I can help you out with that putting the materials together, doing all the fundraising meetings and, and, you know, helping with that process. I can help you kind of 
rebuild the core team as it transitions from second market to DCG. And um, after the first year or so, I'm probably going to want to start a business under the DCG umbrella uh, because of the structure of DCG as a, as a holding company. They had Grayscale, the Bitcoin Investment Trust sponsor. They had Genesis Global Trading, um, which was the former second market trading desk, um, and a portfolio of both digital currencies and, and early stage venture bets that included BitPay and Coinbase and Zappo and, and Circle and others. Um, no one realizes that second market was actually one of the first OTC desks for our space. Well, yeah, they were, they were the OTC desk and they were the creator of the Bitcoin Investment Trust, right? So mm -hmm. um, so this transition happened over the course of, of 18 months as, as kind of second market legacy spun out and sold to NASDAQ and then you know DCG became the, the new parent company, um, focused on, on digital currency, obviously. Uh, but, you know, I had started to kick the tires right before we were fundraising on, on starting an event business because the, the natural question was going to be, okay, you got Grayscale, you got Genesis, you know, can you incubate and, and, and add additional properties in house? And, you know, I said to Barry, I think medium, uh, maybe not media, but, but research information and, and, and events is probably an area that we could clean up because no one's really done a good event. If you look at money 2020, they make ungodly profit margins. And us sitting in the center of this industry, we could we could throw a very good lucrative event. Um, around the same time that we started those conversations, uh, CoinDesk announced that they were going to do an event, Consensus 2015, which was a small single day event that was was uh, focused in New York. Um, we knew though that they weren't doing that well financially, so this is kind of like a last last gasp effort to to kind of maintain themselves as a going concern. And at the same time, I'd recruited a, a professional events team from from Money 2020 to help spin up an event brand under the DCG umbrella. And by the time late 2015 rolled around, we'd completed the fundraise, we'd rebuilt the core team at DCG, and um, Coindesk came up for sale following what had been a successful, but not successful enough, consensus 2015 from a, a dollars and cents standpoint. Um, so we decided to, to smash the editorial brand and kind of the marketing powerhouse that was Coindesk with the events team that I'd already recruited in-house. Um, that uh, was basically a three-city uh, merger of three different teams uh, that all rolled into the same umbrella, and um, and then we, be, you know, by the time we acquired the business, we had three and a half months to pull off the the next consensus conference was, today, which was the was first. that the and consensus became and and is one of the largest events uh, in the world for for crypto. But was 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 this the start? of a transition from Coindesk into a solely like news website, like a, like a Politico or a, or a Huffington post into a, um, I love how I just use the two worst ones as the, as my analogies, but, <laughs> but, um, was this the transition into like what Coindesk became? And then is it, is it related to the further transition of the very recent, you know, um, move that, that coin, you know, Coindesk is moving into, uh, DCG offices and then and then and Pete leaving was that is that all kind of related as to what you see CoinDesk should be or or needs to become to be profitable? Well, uh, you know, I can't comment on the financials of of CoinDesk or, or what they were. Sure, sure, you, sure. You, you can you can do a back of the napkin though. You know, when I when I left, we had grown revenues in in eighteen months. You know, seven, six, seven times, maybe a little bit more than that um, from when we acquired it. Uh, on a an annualized basis, and that was that was before the the 2018 monster of an event that they had, which I think pulled in 
uh, close to they 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 did like something like that was the craziest event. Yeah, they did something like twenty five million in revenue in um, in twenty eighteen, which was forty to fifty x from when we'd acquired it. So mission accomplished in terms of solidifying the consensus brand. Um, and events are are highly profitable, right? So even in a down year like last year, I think I think they did all right. Um, but uh, you know, one of the issues that we ran into in twenty seventeen was um, the very very difficult to recruit engineers uh, into CoinDesk because the the incentives didn't really work as a, a wholly owned subsidiary of DCG, um, so there wasn't really that much you know uh, equity capital or, or you know real. Oh, I see what you're saying. Offer, yeah, offer to engineers, um, and they weren't excited. It's it's hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, around the time uh, that I started to transition out was um, you know Coin Market Cap just started completely crushing CoinDesk on. Um, on SEO uh, because it coincided with the the bull run in in ICOs and and other digital assets not named Bitcoin. Um, now I think that was probably good for for CoinDesk to continue to stay away from some of the excesses of that market for sure. But when it came to understanding whether you know CoinDesk would be a media and events business like TechCrunch or a data platform like Bloomberg, it was pretty clear it was going to be the former. Um, and I left in mid 2017, took a couple months off and, and pretty quickly decided that I wanted to build something that looked a little bit more like Bloomberg. So not straying too far from what we'd done at Coindesk, but maybe merging some of what I learned at Coindesk and some of what I've learned just as, a, as an independent analyst um, to focus on the emergence of, of what I felt was going to be a new asset class, even if most of the assets that were trading were overvalued and, and some of which were, were just complete garbage. Um and yeah, I think we we still believe that. But what's interesting about the state of the industry right now is things have settled down. Valuations, you know, they seem reasonable in in most cases because they're it's better uh, is what you're yeah, saying. It's better. It's not perfect, but it's better. <laughs> well, it's be- it's better because you know that my rubric would be: can can you look at some of these protocol tokens um, and compare them to similarly sized venture bets, infrastructure bets? Um, and you know, you look at some of the more interesting projects, and their tokens are valued in the, you know, low double. Oh, that's a very good points, point. You know, so th- I mean, that's like a Series A company, Series B companies. Um, it, it it makes more sense now. Most of these are still going to fail, um, but they're but on a on an ongoing basis, more and more of them are going to succeed, and you're going to start to see some really interesting killer apps. Um, so, you know, I make the joke that Bloomberg had junk bonds, we have shit coins. <laughs> neither, neither, neither of like the blue chip assets, but but they're the starting point at least because they're the murkiest, they're the toughest to track, and um, and ultimately they're they're where the information asymmetries are most rampant. Who are your perfect customers for Masari? Um, who are you know you're attracting individuals like me, or are you uh, attracting companies? Um, and what type of products and services are are you offering? So our, our goal is to organize and contextualize all crypto information, uh, which is a one way of saying that we're, we're a crypto information aggregator, uh, and that includes pulling markets data, on blockchain data, key events data, and disclosures directly from projects, news, independent research, all into one cohesive searchable data library. Um, and the way that we've thought about, and, and the end result of that, if we're you know, hugely successful in 10, 15, 20 years, it looks something like Bloomberg, but for Wait. crypto, right? But you're not amalgamating or aggregating that data from other sources. You're you're having to you're having to almost find it on your own 
and then you know transpose it into into a readable format. And I'm not just talking about specific data. I'm talking about like there's just constant missing information. So now I can see data aggregators down the road getting the data from you. Yeah, I mean that that's the play, right? Um, but if you think about you know how we've kind of structured our our tech stack. Um, we're very much a an ingestion and output system, right? So an API driven company, um, and and from day one, everybody talks about building Bloomberg for crypto. I guarantee you, every single fucking data company in this industry is, has at some point or another told their investors or their customers or anyone that they're talking to that they're building a quote unquote Bloomberg for crypto. And this has happened since 2017 when all these assets proliferated, and that's fine. But what we said that was a little different was. Well, we want to build a Bloomberg for crypto, just like everybody else that's raising money for a data project right now. But we also recognize that before you can build Bloomberg, you need to be able to build just very basic analytics tools that a professional you know, can, can leverage and, and glean insights from. So things like screeners, um, things like charting tools uh, and, and alerts, right? Extremely remedial stuff. Before you can do that, you need something akin to Edgar. Um, which is even less sexy, but some type of standardized disclosures format so that people could actually compare the different metrics that they're trying to evaluate on an apples to apples basis. And what type of data? The most interesting one is just circulating supply. Right? So uh, throughout 2017, you know, coin market cap, you look at the market caps and you say like Denticoin has a you know $5 billion valuation. Well, it doesn't make any sense on its face. People know that that's not legitimate. But if you just look at the traditional definition of circulating supply, right? What what's price times outstanding supply or yeah. price times fully diluted supply? All right, that that kind of makes sense. Um, but the issue was no one really knew how these tokens were being distributed when they were hitting the market. And what we said was, you're not going to know that by definition if some of the insiders that are distributing these tokens don't tell you what they're doing. Um, and it's not clear and it's not laid out in black and white and there's no you know, high-level disclosures. For public securities, you'd expect this in like a form four or you know, you'd, you'd expect an 8K around you know, a, a material event. Um, no such thing exists in crypto. I think for good reason because most of these are not securities, um, at least not on an ongoing basis. They certainly don't look like securities. But you still need some common sense stakeholder communications and and disclosures that are, are going to satisfy the regulators and make some of the, sh- the, the worst elements of 2017 um, harder to conduct and, and harder to kind of hoodwink investors on. Um, and, and so we created a rubric, which you know more or less mirrors what we think a crypto asset 10K would look like and try to work with teams on scrubbing that of marketing language and putting it in a consistent format so that people can compare these. Oh, so levels. you're saying that, 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 you know, future projects, tokens, security tokens, utilities, non-tokens, you know, whatever it is, um, can come to you in advance and you can help them work through there, make sure that all, you know, their, their information is correct, that they're putting out the right content, but also the right numbers and to work with you like on a transparent, almost like a self-regulatory body. I'd, I'd call it a self-regulatory mechanism, right? Mechanism. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, and, and the key distinction there is I'm never building a fucking yeah. SRO, right? Like, no. <laughs> like there's, I, I feel there's been two in financial services that have been approved in 80 years. Um, FINRA, what's the other one? FINRA, 80 years ago, and then the National Futures Association, uh, which is oh a, yeah yeah, a yeah. Of, okay. associated with commodities, right? So you know, and and by the way, there are great you know initiatives underway. Uh, the Winklevoss twins are kind of spearheading one, and, and I know there's a lot of interest. 
uh, in figuring. You think we'd ever see one? Do you think we'd ever see one? Oh, I, I think so. Um, but you know, for us, we're we're going to be a data vendor um, to whoever ultimately you know has that conversation um, because we've already done a lot of this work, right? So, so there's there's two ways to approach this. There's the exchange way where you have hundreds of millions of dollars at your disposal. And you have the ability to be patient and play this long game and engage with the regulators over a multi-year, maybe even decade-long um, process. And then there's like us as a data startup, which is we're just going to go build this, get people to come with, and we can refine the model long-term if any local regulator wants to see information presented in a certain way from a project that's operating within their jurisdiction or that has team members operating with their jurisdiction. Um, but ultimately, we can accomplish that by getting the exchanges bought in um, and the wallets, custodial wallets and other key stakeholders bought in to the point that they say, if you don't fill out this common application, we're not doing business with you. That's exactly what I was talking about. Like like things like that, where it's where like self, the market regulates itself and the market forces that transparency. Mm-hmm. And so I think that would be really great. And it's so cool that we talk about this because um, so many good things have come from negative ones. If we didn't have that Mt. Gox situation, you, we may not be talking today about the need for that transparency. Same thing with the 2017, you know, ICO drama. So there's a lot of that good comes from bad. Um, let's, you know, you look, you look at the Bitcoin foundation that, that had launched um, in 2012. I think we had launched it, which, which when Gavin and I had originally conceptualized the idea behind the foundation, it was completely different than what it became to be. But you told me something um, I didn't know that Coin Center, which which is, is so important, integral, based in DC for, for industry today, um, that, that kind of came out of, you know, the bad of, of the Bitcoin Foundation. Um, and how so how did that happen? How did that transition happen um, from from your perspective? I wanted to before I ask you that question, I want to preface it really quickly with um how I viewed the foundation and, and how it all went down and then, and then kind of just very briefly, but basically the, the idea that I remember Gavin and I were sitting in a cafe in Vienna and the idea was, I said, I said, Gavin, I want to run a conference. And so this was like 2011, I think. And I said, Gavin, I want to run a conference. And Gavin said, well, I want to get paid as a developer. And that's literally how the foundation came to be. The foundation was going to be a, an industry group, an industry trade association. But, but back then in 2011, there wasn't like, there wasn't a distinction between the overall Bitcoin community and then our industry as an industry that that didn't exist. There was no distinction. And then it became what it became. So I want to let you take it over from here. Yes. So so there's, there's another untold story here, Charlie, which you like. Um, And that is the degree to which I still wake up in cold sweats every now and then thinking about how Badly, I almost burned my entire career following Mt. Cox. Um, so, you know, this was obviously a high stress period, and I'd more or less doubled down and kind of refocused my attention after Mt. Cox to um, just basically trying to blow up the Bitcoin Foundation. Um, and, you know, arguably it was very successful that because uh, this was like the week or two following Mt. Cox. Um, you start to look around at all of the the tangled webs within the foundation, which is supposed to be this advocacy group, and Peter Vesnes and Mark Carpellis are two of the board members, right? They're yeah. suing each other. Yeah. Mark just went bankrupt. 
Um, you know, I, I said what I had to say about Peter back. Well, then. don't forget me too. I'm, I'm sitting there on house arrest oh, I, and I'm I, one I, of the I board. Wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't going to like you, you were picked up <laughs> and, and fucking thrown in, in jail and like, you know, put under house arrest for, for evading, you know, money transfer laws and whatever. Um, and, you know, Roger was, was early involved too. Like he's a, con- I mean, Roger's a great guy, but he's a convicted felon. Right. Um, so, you know, you, you just look at this, like uh, on the surface, right. This cast of characters, and the ones to me that were like the, the, the problems were, you know, Peter and, and, and John, right? Because, you know, who's watching the Watchmen, right? You know that you got these two fucking guys suing each other. So if the foundation knows something, which, you know, I don't know if they had ultimately did or not. I had reason to believe that they did um, and just, you know, either weren't willing or weren't able to, to you know, kind of come forth with some of this information. Um, either way, it was it was like a pretty colossal fuck up from a, a, an advocacy group that was closely tied to Mt. Gox that was totally asleep at the wheel and, um, and, and didn't actually have any pre-knowledge of this, which I find very impossibly hard to believe. Um, so, you know, I, I'd, I'd more or less uh, on my own accord put together a, a, a pretty powerful list of Silicon Valley VCs and, and some of the other entrepreneurs, um, who were, you know, basically taking my phone calls now because of the Mt. Gox, um, documents and, and, and put together a listserv, uh, a miniaturized version of XGBTC where, where the, the goal was to replace the Bitcoin foundation. Right. Um, wow. And, and I got some bad information. I had stepped down like two, two months before this and Jan- January 26, I stepped yeah. down. Yeah, and Mark resigned on the spot, right? Um, yeah. After the after the allegations came out, so then the attention came down to you know John Matonas, who you know I, I think is uh, he's harmless enough. I, he was probably caught in the crossfire. Probably shouldn't gone as hard after him. Um, and um, and then uh, Peter, uh, who was at CoinLab, uh, Coin yeah. Um, and uh, the, the long and short of it is, you know, there was I got bad information about uh, Resi for coming resignations from the Bitcoin foundation. And it ended up kind of blowing up my face in a very public way in this, in this email uh, list that I put together. And someone had corrected me and I said, you know, this is like, you're calling me a liar. Like this is bullshit. Um, and long story short, it kind of imploded the entire conversation, which I recused myself from. Um, and ultimately uh, some cooler heads prevailed and picked up the slack using that same kind of list of contacts. Uh, ultimately, you know, began to, to rally around Coin Center because it was obvious that the uh, the Bitcoin Foundation was not going to be a, a very good messenger for for the community anymore. So uh, there are there are more than a couple of people that will say you really fucked up on that one. But the silver lining is uh, Coin Center did come out of some of those conversations. So that, that this is all behind closed doors and. I'm sure at some point some of my very embarrassing emails will leak, but uh, you know who cares though. But that's such an important story because Coin Center today. I mean, when when the government, when the U.S. government wants to do um, Senate hearings or they want to get someone who you know they they want to ask questions about um, about Bitcoin about crypto, um, they're calling Coin Center. Coin Center is putting on these amazing events. They have that that dinner that I'll never get invited to speak at. Um, <laughs> one. <laughs> um, so, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, but that's a great, it's a great theme. And it's like, um, I mean, so many good things come out of so many bad things in this industry. If we almost like allow them to happen. And 
Ryan, like to give to give our industry some credit here, you know, let's look at like just the, you know the the U.S. crypto industry. Um, we've largely been we largely we largely are where we are today without much government intervention. Like our industry has been allowed mm-hmm. to, um, and I know people complain about like the uh, you have FinCEN, FAFTA, and I, I cover that extensively, but. Let's let's be real here. Like largely we've been left alone. I'm not back in jail. You're not. You know, I mean, like we're not, um, you know, knock on wood. Right. We're, well, there's I, no, I, was, I was I was never going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> the, the point is that um, our, our industry has been largely left um, to, to our own devices to do the things that we want to do, make our own mistakes. And then our industry has been able to like repair them and make good things come out of that. So I guess that's like it's a really nice thing. It's a really good way to end actually. Um, but I'm happy with, with, with where we are today. I know a lot of people get, are not, um, people got burnt out, but I'm, I'm largely happy with where we are today and I'm, and I'm content. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, um, you, the, the, the MO that I, I try to develop is if you're going to tear something down rebuild a better version of it. Right. So, um, I think that happened with Mount Cox, you know, Bitstamp got funded a month later. I think that happened with the, my ill-fated war with the Bitcoin foundation, which is ultimately effective and, and ultimately led to their, uh, diminished importance and, and coin centers rise. Um, I think it was true for, you know, conferences, you know, we, we picked up the slack at Coindesk and took the mantle a year after the final Bitcoin foundation conference. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that tip that tends to happen in an industry that's got as many moving parts and, and exciting opportunities as crypto. So, um, you see the same archetypes, every market cycle, uh, that, that emerge. And it's, I don't know if you ever saw the wire, right? The, the final montage from the series, the wire is basically just history repeating itself in Baltimore with all the same archetypes, you know, the good cop, bad cop, renegade, you know, uh, gangster and, and all that. Um, I think the same is is true for us, but um, hopefully each in- incremental version is uh, is one level up from where we started. Ryan, how can people follow you on Twitter? Um, I know they go to masari.io. We'll have the information in the show notes, but um, what's the best way for people to sign up to read your, your newsletters, to, to follow you? Yep. We are at Masari Crypto, M-E-S-S-A-R-I, Masari like Ferrari, crypto. Uh, and I am at two bit idiot, all spelled out. Um, if you want to sign up for our newsletter or my podcast, uh, unqualified opinions is sent daily as a newsletter, and we do two shows a week as well with other personalities. Have to have the uh, very Does famous Charlie Shrem on at some point. I need to come on the show as soon as possible. <laughs> I'll be in New York in a few months. But um, the 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 amazing emails that I get that I you know I enjoy reading them. How can how can my listeners sign up to that? Uh, you can subscribe directly on the Masari homepage. Um, Perfect. So enter your email, sign up. It's free daily. We also have some pro tools for $30 a month for the slightly more hardcore that combine uh, advanced analytics and, and research and, uh, and some of the tools that we're building in-house. Ryan Selkis, Masari.io. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Charlie. See you soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire 
from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers, and information is power.